God sees your grief, God hears your prayers, and God desires your worship. worshiping here with you all this morning. I want to begin with the, with the story of the birth of two children. Maybe it's okay Ian and Savannah aren't here right now, maybe it would make them a little nervous, but uh, yeah, they can listen to the recording later. These two families don't know each other. These two families have never met. Uh, but both birth stories go back to the 1980s, to two sets of Christian parents in the U.S. So Gary and Rieko were expecting their first child. They were both believers. They were involved in their church. Gary himself was a doctor, so he would have had a better idea of what to expect during childbirth than the average dad. I mean, he'd delivered babies before, right? There were no complications during birth, but shortly after birth, an observant nurse kind of noticed something was wrong, stuck a little tube down the baby's uh, esophagus to check. Then the doctor ordered a chest x-ray. After seeing the results, he didn't have much heart to talk to the dad. It was a condition called T. fistula, in which the tube, a tube that was meant to go to the stomach, went directly into a lung. So he brought Gary into his office, showed Gary the checks x-ray, and asked Dr. Gary, oh, as doctors, what's your diagnosis? And he said, oh, oh, it's this and this. And he's like, oh, that's your son. The textbook's on my desk. And then the doctor left. The little boy would have to undergo surgery right away. Risk was much higher than most surgeries you can think of. There was a, a one in four chance the baby wouldn't make it. Inspired by 1 Samuel, Chapter 1, and the story of Hannah, Gary and Rieko prayed, God, if you save him, he's all yours. Then our second couple, Paul and Jill, were expecting a daughter. They had had other children before, so knew a bit of what to expect. During pregnancy, Jill prayed regularly that God would keep their baby from harm, a prayer inspired by Psalm 121. Paul wrote part of what happened in an illustration in a book he wrote. When Kim was born, everything went wrong. The doctor gave Chill too much pidocin, a drug to induce labor, and then left her unattended. Paul had seen his wife go through three natural childbirths, but this was different. She was in agony. The doctor never came back to the delivery room. Then Kim was born blue, and her first Agpar score was low. Something was wrong. Paul called Jill's parents from a payphone at the hospital. Something's wrong with the baby, he said, and burst into tears. Baby Kim grew, but there was still a lot wrong, including severe breathing trouble. So as she grew year by year, her mother Jill began to hate the, the charts that described what your child should be doing at what age. Some doctors said encouraging things saying Kim was fine, others didn't. 
Paul and Joe were overwhelmed at the number of problems Kim had. It was agony, especially for Jill. At one point, Paul told Jill, Why don't you just give Kim to God? She replied, Paul, every day I take Kim up in my arms, walk her up to the foot of the cross, and then turn my back and come down again. Now, whether or not you are parents, can you relate to the way that these parents were feeling? Can you think of situations in your life that drive you to desperate prayer? What situations remind you that you are not in control and as hard as it may be to trust God in that situation, you fall to your knees? This morning we'll be beginning a series in the book of 1 Samuel. At least when I'm preaching, the, the plan, Lord willing, is for me to preach through the book of 1 Samuel by the end of the year. The book of 1 Samuel focuses on the lives of three men, Samuel, Saul, and David. Samuel acts as God's appointed judge and prophet who will anoint the first two kings of Israel. You could call Samuel a, a kingmaker, but he was only a kingmaker because God appointed him to be. First Samuel is a story with battles, corruption, betrayal, friends and enemies, spear throwing, and outlaws running for their lives. But that's not where the book of First Samuel begins. It doesn't begin with a, a coronation ceremony or a handsome king on a horse. The book of First Samuel begins with a weeping woman named Hannah. Similarly to recently studying the book of Ruth, the book of 1 Samuel begins with a story that is in many ways relatable. It's not set in a palace. It's a story set in a relatively ordinary, although dysfunctional, Israelite family. It's a story in which God will step in to address Hannah's grief. And God will do so in a way that Hannah could not have imagined. So if you haven't turned there already, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel comes right after the book of Ruth in our Bibles. And the events of 1 Samuel come after the events of the book of Judges. As you remember from the end of the book of Judges, this was a time in which everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And there was no king in the land. Before we work through this passage, I'd like to sum up the, the main idea, crystallize what this passage is, is teaching us. So our main point is this. God sees your grief, God hears your prayers, and God desires your worship. God sees your grief, God hears your prayers, and God desires your worship. The outline has three points that follow this main point. First is Hannah's grief in verses 1 to 8. Second is Hannah's prayer in verses 9 to 18. And third is Hannah's worship in verses 19 to 28. So let's begin with point one, Hannah's grief. Please look with me at 1 Samuel 1 verses 1 to 8. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, 
son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So the book of 1 Samuel begins with a short genealogy of an ordinary man named Elkanah. There aren't famous or well-known men in his genealogy. The name Elkanah means God has created, with the idea of God has created a son quite possibly being implied. So that's, that's interesting. That might foreshadow something. One commentator notes that Elkanah is the only commoner in the book of Samuel and Kings mentioned as having more than one wife. So this might point to him being fairly well-to-do, having enough to support two wives. In verse 2, Hannah is mentioned first, and then Penina. It's very possible that Elkanah married Hannah first, and when it became apparent that Hannah was unable to bear children, married Penina in order to have children. We must remember in reading narrative and reading a story that there's a difference between something being described and something being prescribed. In other words, just because the Old Testament tells us of more than one instance in which a man had more than one wife does not mean that the Old Testament is teaching that that practice was good or right in the sight of God. Remember, this is said in the time of the judges, everyone is doing what is right in their own sight. And pretty much every example of a man taking more than one wife, you can think of Jacob taking Rachel and Leah and the rivalry that ensued. All these examples result in very dysfunctional marriage relationships. We also must remember that in Genesis 2, verse 24, both wife and one flesh are used in the singular. God created one wife for Adam. If Adam needed two helpers, God could have created an Eve and an Eva for Adam, but God did not because that was not God's design for marriage. Having two wives is one example of how the surrounding pagan culture influenced Israel. Further examples of kings having more than one wife in Israel would have disastrous results as well. And this idea of a rival wife for this term is actually already in the Bible. In God's law in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 18, it commands against taking a sister as a rival wife. God's teaching on one husband marrying one wife is made even clearer as we get to the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 7, for example. And this introducing of this rivalry between Hannah and Penina is, it comes from the very beginning of the passage. 
Notice in verse 2, Hannah is mentioned first in one sentence, but in the next sentence, Penina is mentioned first. And the contrast is that Penina has children, Hannah does not. So from the first couple sentences, we can see that there will be trouble in the family of Elkanah. But it does seem that there's one aspect in which Elkanah is seeking to try and honor God. That's in taking his family every year to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice. At the time that the tabernacle of the Lord was, was in Shiloh, the book of Judges as well speaks of, of Shiloh being the place where the house of God was. Here Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are introduced. We'll get back to them later. The trip to Shiloh should have been a joyful occasion, but instead it was a grief-filled trip each time for Hannah. Penina used it as an opportunity to provoke Hannah to the point of tears. Perhaps Penina was jealous of Elkanah's doting on Hannah. But whatever the case, Penina took pleasure in making Hannah cry. One can imagine many ways in which Penina could rub it into Hannah that Hannah had no children. Sarcastic comments with her many children. Oh, kids, wouldn't it be nice if Hannah had some kids for you to play with? But oh, but God hasn't given Hannah kids. Oh, that's so sad. I wonder why God hates Hannah so much. Or snarky comments to her husband. Oh, yes, give Hannah some more meat to dry her tears. Give her the steak. Oh, but my kids here are hungry too. Wait, don't give that to her. Give it to my kids. For Penina, every trip to Shiloh wasn't mainly an opportunity to worship, but an opportunity to provoke Hannah. But did you notice in the passage why Hannah was barren? It mentions it twice, just in case you missed it the first time. It says that the Lord closed her womb. For some reason, God had brought about this circumstance that caused Hannah so much grief. Hannah's barrenness is not most importantly tied to some medical condition, although God could use any medical condition he would want for his purposes. It's made crystal clear here that God has caused Hannah's barrenness. So why would God bring about such pain for Hannah, and why would God test Hannah in this way? Sometimes we may not get answers to our why questions in this life, but I think looking back on Hannah's story, we see that God is doing something much bigger than Hannah could have ever dreamed. In God's timing, God will show compassion to Hannah. Hannah can't see it yet. At this point in the story, Hannah is still weeping. And the words that Hannah's husband says to her to comfort her don't seem to comfort her at all. Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? The reason that Elkanah gives may sound somewhat rational. At least Elkanah thinks it's rational. Elkanah does care for Hannah. But Elkanah is telling Hannah, Hannah, you may not have sons, but you have me. But, but actually, even that's not true. Hannah does not have Elkanah in a way that marriage was meant to be. Hannah has to share Elkanah with another wife who hates her. So any comfort that Elkanah can give Hannah is tarnished by the reality that Elkanah took two wives. But there's more that we can take away here as well from this example of words that did not comfort Hannah in her grief. For those of you who are husbands, maybe you can even ask your wives what they think of what Elkanah said. So for husbands in the room, especially consider what would be wise and 
God honoring ways to comfort your wife in grief. For those of you who are not husbands, you can consider other opportunities you may have to, to comfort someone close to you. I think we all have those kinds of opportunities at some points in our lives. So there are two simple applications I want to bring up in just thinking of, of Elkanah's failed attempt to comfort his wife. First, don't make light of the other person's grief. Elkanah's questions make it sound like he thinks it's a small thing that Hannah has not been given children. Elkanah makes light of her grief, but that's not a comforting thing to do. Hannah's grief is very real, and it's not comforting to ask Hannah, why, why are you making such a big deal of this all the time or every year? So instead, let us consider how we can listen well to someone who is grieving. Elkanah's questions aren't really questions. They're rhetorical questions meant to make Elkanah's point. But wouldn't it be more helpful if Elkanah asked open-ended questions, truly asking Hannah to, to share what's on her heart with her husband? And then second, don't point, yourself, don't point to yourself as the answer to the problem. You or I are not the answer to the problem. Point to God. Yes, there may be times in a marriage when a husband should be saying over and over uh, his love for his wife. But in the end, she needs God's comfort. Whether it's your spouse or a friend who is grieving, if we try to rely on our own ingenuity to be comforting, we'll likely fail miserably. But we can comfort others by appropriately, appropriately pointing others to truth from God's word or or truth about God. That brings us to the end of point one, Hannah's grief. In the story, the narrator doesn't clearly state, oh, yes, God saw Hannah's grief. But as we read the rest of the story, we do see that God saw Hannah's grief and God will show compassion. So let's keep going. We come to our second point, Hannah's prayer. Please look with me at verses 9 to 18. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. But I have been, boring, been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went on her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So Hannah leaves the family gathering to go to the tabernacle, and there in her distress and her grief she's weeping. And she begins to pray. She addresses the Lord as Lord of hosts. 
She knows she's speaking to the God who is all-powerful, the God who is over all earthly hosts and all heavenly hosts, the God who is God of angel armies. Hannah asks that the Lord look upon her affliction. Hannah believes in a, a compassionate God, the same God who looked on the affliction of the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt, that he might also look on one barren woman in grief. And Hannah's promise is that if God gives her a son, she will give him back to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor shall touch his head. It would appear here that Hannah is basically giving a, a Nazarite vow on her son's behalf. So Nazarite vows are described in Numbers chapter 6. They're a special vow that separates a person to the Lord. The word Nazarite simply means one separated or consecrated. The Nazarite would separate himself or herself to the Lord by not drinking wine or strong drink, by not cutting his hair, and by separating himself from dead bodies. The only other place in the Bible that the phrase, no razor shall touch his head, is used is in reference to Samson, who also was a Nazarite, although there are a few examples in which Samson did not keep his vow very well. And so it appears that Hannah is promising God that if God gives her a son, this son will be a Nazarite, separated, consecrated to God. Hannah continues to pray, and Eli the priest mistakes Hannah for a drunken woman. Now this makes me think of, have you ever, maybe even at, at lunch after church, you sit down, um, someone's praying silently, and then you start talking to them, like you interrupt them before the meal. Have you ever done that? Uh, and, you, and you feel bad because you're like, oh no, this person was praying and talking to God, and I interrupted their conversation with God. And, but what Eli does here is worse. While Hannah's praying, Eli accuses Hannah of being drunk. He doesn't ask any questions. He simply tells this apparently drunken woman, stop your drinking. Now, we might want to give Eli excuses. Perhaps there were lots of drunk people worshiping at the temple. But even that really shouldn't be an excuse. The priests shouldn't be allowing lots of drunk people to be worshiping at the temple. But whatever the case, it's a sad state of affairs when the priest who is meant to represent the people before God cannot tell the difference between a, a hurt and wounded sheep and a rebellious, drunken woman. This seems to foreshadow further descriptions in the next few chapters of, of Eli's incompetence or, or sin in some ways. So Hannah corrects Eli. Hannah is not the worthless woman as Eli assumes. Actually, this word worthless will be used to describe Eli's sons in the next chapter. Instead, Hannah tells Eli that she is troubled in spirit and pouring out her soul to the Lord. So once Eli stands corrected, Eli's response to Hannah is actually helpful. As priest, Eli would have pronounced many blessings from Scripture, and this blessing sounds like a summary of the blessing that, from the time of Aaron, priests were to give. Eli says, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. This blessing acts like a benediction, similarly to how we hear a benediction from God's word, a blessing from God's word at the end of our service. But whether we're blessed by the benediction at the end of the service doesn't depend on the holiness of the brother 
giving the benediction. Yes, hopefully each of these men are growing in holiness, but the benediction is a blessing in which we're hearing God's word, God's blessing. As we will see later, Eli was a, a fatally flawed priest, but this blessing was exactly what Hannah needed. Hannah responds, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she goes on her way and eats, and her face is no longer sad. Hannah's attitude has changed from desperate prayer and pouring out her heart to God to an attitude of peace. And notice, nothing has changed in Hannah's circumstances. Hannah did not wait until she had a baby bump that she could see to have peace. Hannah did not wait until she was pregnant to stop fasting. Instead, Hannah could trust God after her time in prayer. After her desperate, persistent prayer, Hannah could lay it all at God's feet and then continue to go about her life. God did not need to answer Hannah's prayer in order for Hannah to begin to trust him. Instead of very active praying and a reminder that God has heard her petition is what it took for Hannah to decide. It's time to head back to her husband who cares for her, but doesn't really understand her, and to her rival wife, and to her rival wife's many children. So brothers and sisters, God hears our prayers. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is the same God. The God of the Old Testament listened to the prayers of this one barren woman. And after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who stands to intercede for us, we even better understand why we can boldly come before God's throne of grace. And when we do, when we pour out our hearts to God, we can trust that God will answer in the way that most delights Him. Brothers and sisters, prayer is such a privilege. At times it may not feel like it. At times we may forget how amazing it is that the God of the universe listens to our prayers. At times we may forget that God listens to us in a more loving way than the most loving parent listens to their children's requests. So if you have a hard time trusting God, start praying to Him. If you're going through grief and distress, keep praying to Him. And you may be surprised that God is teaching us to trust Him with our circumstances and despite our circumstances at times. If you were sitting close enough to me and my family earlier in the service, you could hear our son saying, ah, chirping ma. So he's asking for a snack. He's asking for a cracker. And, and he often looks happiest and most excited, not necessarily when he has started eating, but when I start to open the wrapper, you can see his eyes light up. Because he knows I'm about to give him this snack. At that moment, he can trust and he can wait for a moment as I'm opening the wrapper. Now, of course, there are certain times when I, I might not give him a snack. For example, on Sundays, it's easy to run out of snacks. Or right before a meal, we're probably not going to give him a snack. And he might get upset about that. So I wonder how often we're like little kids with our, our limited understanding of the world and of the future throwing temper tantrums at God because he won't give us dessert right before dinner. We pray and we think God must answer our prayer in the way that I'm asking, and, and we don't understand when or if he doesn't. 
That brings me back to one of the stories I mentioned at the beginning. Prayer for their baby daughter, Kim, had become a long and continued journey for Paul and Jill. It took a number of years before Kim's version of autism was diagnosed. For quite some time, it had felt that God had said no to Jill's prayer from Psalm 121. But Paul writes in his book, years later when Kim was about 20, I was sitting at the dining room table writing a Bible study on Psalm 121 that I was going to teach to our small group. I'd forgotten about Jill's Psalm 121 prayer. I looked up from the table and said, Jill, God did it. He kept us from all harm. He did Psalm 121. We had thought the harm was a daughter with disabilities, but this was nothing compared to the danger of two proud and willful parents. Because Kim was mute, Jill and I learned to listen. Her helplessness taught us to become helpless too. Kim brought Jesus into our home. Jill and I could no longer do life on our own. We needed Jesus to get from one end of the day to the other. We'd asked for a loaf of bread, and instead of giving us a stone, our Father had spread a feast for us in the wilderness. Thank you, Jesus, for Kim. The story of Hannah is a story in which God answers prayer in the way that Hannah's heart had desired. But God's wisdom is much greater than ours, and he may answer prayers in a completely different way, as was the case for Paul and Jill. But whatever the case, we can trust God with our prayers. Whatever the case, we can fervently pray and trust with God with how he will answer, because it was working for our spiritual good that we might know and love him more. The book that I quoted that Paul wrote is called A Praying Life. If it were not for their daughter Jill, perhaps that book and much of Paul's ministry would never have happened. But God used what seemed like a, a non-answer to prayer for the good of Paul, his wife Jill, their children, including Kim, and the many Christians who have benefited from Paul Miller's books and teaching. So brothers and sisters, go to God in prayer. Trust him with your prayers. And allow your fellow brothers and sisters to pray for you. Share with one another your requests. Ask one another, how can I pray for you? Come to evening service ready to share and ready to pray for others. Persist in prayer. And as you pray, remember the kindness and goodness of God. That brings us to our third point, Hannah's worship. Hannah's worship. Please look with me from verse 19 until the end of chapter 1. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him only. May the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, 
As you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. God remembered Hannah. God had seen her grief. God had heard her prayers. And God answered by giving Hannah a son. Hannah named her son Samuel. The name Samuel literally means name of God. There may even be kind of like a double meaning in the name Samuel. The first is the literal meaning. The second is the consonants in the name Samuel are the same consonants in the same order as in the Hebrew word for ask. My Hebrew is not very good, but I read it in a commentary. So Hannah is very clearly reminded by Samuel's name that she had asked God for Samuel. Hannah waited until the child was weaned to bring him to Shiloh. Hannah would keep her word. Hannah's son, once Hannah had finished nursing, would be brought to Shiloh to dwell in the Lord's presence. The family brought in abundance, including a three-year-old bull to sacrifice, and Hannah brought Samuel to Eli. Hannah proclaims to Eli that God had answered her prayer that she had made when Eli was present. And just as God gave Hannah Samuel, Hannah is giving Samuel back to God. At the very end when it says, and he worshiped the Lord there, I think that's referring to Samuel. For as long as Samuel would be in Shiloh, he would continue to worship the Lord there. Hannah's act of worship involved giving what, had, what God had given her, giving her son back to God. Now isn't that how basically all of our acts of worship are as well? God has given us our voice and we sing to him. God has given us our lives. We live for him. Hannah's act of worship involved keeping her promise and trusting a very young boy to God. We don't notice any hesitation on Hannah's part to follow through on the promise. It may be hard to imagine, especially for parents, dropping your, your two or three-year-old off to spend the rest of his life in the tabernacle. It would seem like such a difficult thing for a mother to do. Yet Hannah continues to proclaim the goodness of God in giving her a son. And the idea of giving your children back to God is not only meant to be for those who expect their children to take a Nazarite vow. The second half of Exodus 22, verse 29 says, The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. The Israelites were in one way to give all their firstborn children to, back to God. That's not to take away from the significance of the vow that Hannah made, but it should be a reminder to all of us who are parents that we must entrust God with our children. Going back to the story of Gary and Rieko, their son had a successful surgery. He soon was able to, to go home with thankful parents. They wanted to continue to have an attitude of, of God, he's yours, as he grew up. Gary and Rieko had two other sons as well, each of whom they seek to entrust to God, even as their sons have grown up. Gary and Rieko are my parents, so I was texting my dad about this illustration earlier this week because I don't remember right when I was a baby. But at different times in my life, God has continued to teach them and to teach me to trust God with my life. Even Christian parents may have difficulty if their, their child has a desire to move overseas for the purpose of sharing the gospel. But by the time God had prepared my heart to go, God had also prepared my parents' hearts to fully support me and to trust God with me. 
even if I might spend much of my life an ocean away. As Christian parents, God may teach us to entrust our children to him in all sorts of ways. Even in thinking of my wife being pregnant or giving birth, there's so much that I'm reminded is completely out of my control. And that's a good reminder to trust God. And trusting God with the children in this room is not just for those who are parents. As a church, this is in our church covenant. We are to endeavor to bring up such as may at any time be under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There's nurture, there's admonition, there's seeking salvation for our children and for other friends and family. And this is not only for our nuclear family to take part in, this is something that we, we covenant together as a church to support one another in. And so brothers and sisters, let's encourage one another in the task of nurturing and admonishing those who we hope and pray will be future worshipers of the Lord. We cannot guarantee our children's salvation but we can continue to pray for them, and we can continue to pray for, for other parents' children as well. And let's invite one another into our lives. For the families, let, let's give other members of the church opportunities to be godly influences on our kids. Let's consider ways we can open doors for good discipleship. Perhaps at first you think asking another church member to uh, drive your kids somewhere or to, um, or to watch them for an afternoon is kind of like, like, oh, kind of thing. You're just like, oh, you feel a little bad about asking. But actually, when you ask for practical help, have you ever thought that this also might be opening a door for, for this other member, uh, for this other Christian to, uh, to get to know your kids and care for your kids? Hopefully you can continue to care for who this other member is as well. We want to care for each member in the congregation. But we also want to open the door for these kinds of opportunities. And for the singles, consider how you can get to know not only the parents, but be a blessing to the whole family. Our church has a number of very young kids, but there are also older kids as well who may have really good questions and may be ready for deep conversations about the Bible. And some of the younger kids may remember kindness you showed to them in Gospel Project as they grow up, and you may continue to have opportunities to speak encouraging words to them as they grow. This is not in any way to take away from the responsibility of the parents, but this is one way we can care for one another as a church. Hannah's act of worship would have significant consequences. At first, 1 Samuel chapter 1 may seem like a very ordinary story. But we're reminded that God uses ordinary people to accomplish God's extraordinary purposes. God would reveal more of this to Hannah when we get to Hannah's prayer in the next chapter. In 1 Samuel, one theme we'll see occur more than once is the theme of role reversal. The barren woman becomes full. Have you ever considered why so often in the Bible God uses a barren woman to give birth to someone who would play such a significant role in the history of God's people? Think of Sarah, think of Elizabeth, think of Hannah. God delights to bless his people. God delights to grow their faith. God delights to look on those who seem to be weak. 
those who seem to have nothing and bring that person into the limelight. But the limelight's not shining on these women or their children. The limelight is shining on God. Hannah giving birth to Samuel was a miracle that God wrought for his purposes. Israel was waiting for a king. First, God would give them a kingmaker who would be obedient to God and who would trust God just like his mother trusted God. Israel knew that their priesthood was corrupt. God would give them a faithful priest in the person of Samuel. Israel's future kings would sin against God. God would use Samuel to act as a prophet to speak God's word to these kings. Hannah gave her son back to God. And we'll see in the rest of Samuel's story that Samuel is God's faithful, obedient servant. Now, God would use Samuel well to lead God's people for a season. But just as we saw in the time of Judges, and as we'll see as kings come and go, Israel follows along with an evil leader even more willingly than they follow a godly one. God's people would need a forever great high priest. Who could represent them before God. God's people would need a prophet who would truly call them to repentance. God's people would need a perfect king whose reign would not end. As we continue to see in the book of 1 Samuel, the, the people might not realize it yet, but the prophet, the priest, the king that they need is Jesus. Perhaps you also look on this world and think, wow, this world lacks good kings. While this world lacks people who proclaim God's word, while this world needs Jesus. And brothers and sisters, Jesus has come. God's people wanted a king, and the king that God would one day give is infinitely better than the king that we deserve. God gave us his son to live, to die, to rise again, and to reign as king over us. And as hard as it is to imagine that Hannah could even have a little understanding of the multitude of blessings God had in store for his people, prayer in chapter 2 shows that God would reveal significantly more than a little to his servant Hannah. Her desperate prayer would turn into a bold prayer of praise that we'll plan to dive into in a couple weeks. And it all started with a weeping and barren Hannah. God saw Hannah's grief, he heard Hannah's prayer, and God would use Hannah's prayer to bless God's people. Ultimately, he would bless his people through the person and work of King Jesus. That's the God who we serve. We may be asking God for a loaf of bread, and God has a feast prepared for us. Let's go to that God now in prayer. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are God. We praise you for you are the Lord of hosts. Lord, we praise Jesus for he is our King. Lord, we pray that we would live faithfully in honor to our King this week and in the weeks to come. And Lord, we thank you that you hear our prayers. Lord, we thank you that you continue to show your great compassion to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.